In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When a bad thing happens to a good person or a child, we wonder, where was God? When good things happen to scoundrels, we may ask the same question. Both of these things occur routinely. Even so, when a bad thing happens to a sinner, we may be inclined to jump to the wrong conclusion. A woman I knew who died way too young from cancer believed that she was being punished for a sin. Her sin was serious, but she was misreading God. I will tell you how I know that in a minute. The same misread pops up here and there in Scripture, so the Old Testament gives one entire book to set the record straight. That book is Job. Terrible things are happening to Job, and his friends believe he is being punished. Job must have done something to deserve this pain. Job insists that he is innocent. In the end, God sides with Job. To Job's accusers, God says, you have not spoken of me what, as, what is right, as my servant Job has. So what are we to make of a sequence of events culminating in this morning's reading from the book of Numbers? First, God saves Israel from slavery under Pharaoh, a great victory for the underdog. Three cheers for God. Next, Israel learns that salvation is no picnic in the park. The wilderness road to the promised land is long and hard, and the food is terrible. The people bitterly complain. Enter the snakes. Who sent the snakes? According to Scripture, God. Some of the people get bit and die. As a penalty for grumbling, death seems too harsh. I think we can all agree. The people beg for mercy, and they get it. At God's instruction, Moses fashions a biblical caduceus, a snake shaped into a symbol. To us, the caduceus symbolizes medicine. In our story, it is medicine itself. The snake-bitten sinners who look at it are healed. I quote, So Moses made a servant of bronze and put it upon a pole, And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Except for those who died, the story has a happy ending. In outline, the sequence went like this. Mercy, sin, wrath, mercy. Let's not focus on the happy ending. Let's focus on the middle chapters, sin and wrath. What kind of entity is wrath? Is it real? Is it a punishment for sin? Those are our questions for this morning. It is apropos because flu bugs and snakes are not that different theologically. They both make people sick who sometimes die. Were we grumbling too much last fall? Julie got the flu twice. Had she been double bad? As modern people, that's not how we think. When we get sick, our first response is not to come to church and beg for mercy. Instead, we go to the friendly professionals with the white coats wearing stethoscopes 
who may have a snake symbol on their door and who give us steroid shots and Tamiflu and we feel better soon. Max Weber, the great 19th century philosopher, said the modern world is disenchanted. By that he meant that in the modern world, flu bugs, snake bites, and even mental illnesses are understood as natural problems, drained of spiritual and moral meanings. And so are their solutions. It is not the snake on the doctor's door that cures, but the expertise in medicine inside. Modern thought and science rose hand in hand. I'm reminded of T.H. Huxley's famous comment, strangled theologians lay about the crib of every science like snakes beside the bed of Hercules. Huxley was a 19th century biologist who rejoiced in being disenchanted and who enjoyed the thought of theologians being strangled. (laughs) A disenchanted interpretation of divine wrath is that it was superstitious sound and fury signifying nothing, as Lady Macbeth believed, and being disenchanted left her free to murder Duncan without fear of interference from the Lord. Was she safe in that assumption? I will say of modern thought what Tolstoy once said of Christian faith. There is truth in the doctrine, but it harbors a lie. The truth in modern thought is its appreciation for the autonomy of nature. Snakes and flu bugs do what's natural to them following a script that is written in their genes. They bite us when we're bad and bite us when we're good. Jesus was making the same point when he said, the sun shines and the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. He did not believe in misfortune as a punishment for sin. When we sin, bad things may happen, but that is our doing, not the Lord's. That is a truth in modern thought. And it is the reason my dear young friend was wrong in beating herself up for her own tragic illness. The modern lie, a doozy, is in its thinking that the natural world is godless. So let's frame the opposites. Ancient superstition saw the hand of God in everything. Modern thought wants to see it in nothing. Both beliefs are simple, And in isolation from the other, neither one is true. Karl Barth called Christ the union of the opposites. The truth about the world and God is caught up in that wonderful union, the truth about God's wrath included. This wrath has several aspects, and I'll name three. To begin... We've heard the saying that virtue is its own reward. It's just better to be honest than to cheat. In our reading from John, Jesus throws that saying in reverse. This is the judgment. This is the judgment that people loved darkness rather than light. Wrath is the downside of our own choices. Stewing in our own juices is its own negative reward. The wrath has that passive aspect. But it has an active aspect, too. 
God is an interested participant in life on earth. Christ makes that clear. When our purposes are at odds with God's, and we are obstructing traffic, we may get hurt. When the train is coming, don't cross the tracks. In Scripture, think of Pharaoh, Jezebel, and Judas, and the temple money changers. When Paul was persecuting Christians, God knocked him off his horse. It hurts you to kick against the goads, he said. In history, think of what Lincoln said in his second inaugural address. The Civil War was a result of our nation's tolerance of slavery at cross-purposes with God's desire. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln had that right, I think. The war was a massive train wreck. So wrath has both an active and a passive aspect. There's one more facet that I'll mention. Now let's think about the fellow with a ticket in his wallet who slept in and missed the train. It was daylight savings time. Oh, the places you'll go, you'll be on your way up, you'll be seeing great sights, you'll, be jo- you'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights, except you slept and missed the trip. Speaking personally, I imagine my life these last four years had I said no to coming here as dean. At first I did. And then a feeling struck me that I should call you back and give a different answer. Had I slept in, I wouldn't have known what I would have missed. Wrath can also be an absence of experience, a void. No bad thing happens to make the news or history books, but a story that could have happened didn't. Dementia, cancer, epilepsy, and the flu seem wrathful, but they are not. Evil, yes but wrathful, no. Evil and wrath are both bad, so what's the difference? God isn't the difference, but we are. Evil is corruption of the good, and God is against it always. When we are against it, we're with God. Wrath is when we're playing for the other team. With evil, it feels sometimes as though our team is losing. When my father's dementia was at its worst, I said to my mother, we're living in a nightmare. For all of us, life feels like that at times, and that can leave us feeling disenchanted. In such times, we turn to Christ for hope. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is foreshadowing. Lifted up means crucified, a nightmare. On the cross, it looked and must have felt 
as though he were being punished. The superstitious thought he was. The disenchanted saw him as a victim of something. Fear, jealousy, imperial oppression, name your poison. The cross was wrath to the first group, and to the second it was sound and fury signifying nothing. In Paul's words, it was a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But the seeming wrath of God was gracious. The foolishness of God was wise. The weakness of God was powerful, according to Paul. That's called a paradox. A truth appears in the guise of its negation. The train was moving through Jerusalem. God loves this world. It says it right there in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. So life and death are paradoxical. Through the guise of death, Christ's death first and then our own, we enter life eternal. Even Moses didn't know this, though he may have suspected it, knowing God. We know it from the Bible. How does the Bible know it? It learned it in Jerusalem, and it passes the news on to us that the cross of Christ that looks so much like wrath is given out of love. The truth looks upside down to us, but we now know better than to assume that suffering is wrathful because we've seen it as the guise of grace before.